Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Hello, Marion. Indiana Jones. Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? I need one of the pieces your father collected. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 93, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the podcast that's all about history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a very warm welcome to you all, whether you're a returning listener or if you're a brand new listener, uh, I hope you're all keeping safe and well. And um, and I'm just really going to jump straight into it because it turns out this episode on Raiders of the Lost Ark is quite a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. When I actually looked into doing Raiders of the Lost Ark, I thought, oh well, there's not really much information out there about Raiders of the Lost Ark, and how wrong was I? Because there is loads of stuff to get through on this one. But before I do, I just wanted to say, obviously, welcome to everyone. Remind everyone that there's always lots going on here at Verbal Diorama. There is a hundredth episode, which is almost here. There is a brand new sister podcast called Rotoscoperama, which I'm currently working on as well. Plus, there are also brand new exclusive episodes on the horizon just for patrons, which I'm also working on. So I'm basically working on a lot of stuff right now. And just a quick thing, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who gave me some really nice comments on Dirty Dancing. Um, It was slightly different to other episodes, mainly due to it being recorded several weeks ago, plus having a guest. And also the guest that I had, Mark Asquith, is a very busy man. So he couldn't actually spare a great deal of time, which is why the format was how it was. But But despite this change, I did get some really nice comments. And it's always a bit difficult sort of changing up the format because you're never sure if listeners are going to enjoy it. But you know what? 
you guys who are listening right now and basically anyone who's listening you are the best listeners in the world so i'm always so grateful to everyone who takes the time to listen and and to provide feedback as well i know that some listeners aren't entirely happy about guest episodes but i really do like to have them occasionally because i think it's really good to bring a different voice onto this podcast and Mark was a really brilliant guest for Dirty Dancing because he's literally the last person that you would expect for a Dirty Dancing episode. And that's kind of why I wanted to do it. But I digress. As I said, I really want to jump into Raiders of the Lost Ark because this is going to be a chunky episode. So we are going to go back to 1936 and we're going to meet Dr. Henry Indiana Jones Jr. for the very first time. Here's the trailer. Nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark, if it is there, Atanis, then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on Earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. I tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let her go. Hey, we have no time. If you still want the Ark, it has been loaded onto a truck for Cairo. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Nazis rumoured to have pinpointed the secret resting place of the fabled Ark of the Covenant, the sacred artefact that holds the Ten Commandments, the US government enlists the help of the American archaeologist, university professor and man of adventure Indiana Jones. Assumed to contain an unfathomable destructive force, Indiana Jones travels to the dangerous mountains of Nepal and then to mysterious Cairo where he teams up with his old flame Marion Ravenwood and his friend Salah. But this is a frenzied race against time, and the road to the coveted relic passes through Indy's scheming arch-rival, Dr. René Belloc, and the sadistic Gestapo commander, Major Todd's armed-to-the-teeth army. Can Indiana Jones prevent the Ark from falling into the wrong hands? <laughs> Basically, what I'm saying is I can't say the word unfathomable 
very well. Uh, so let's quickly go through the cast of this movie. We have, of course, Harrison Ford as Henry, Indiana Jones, Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood, Paul Freeman as René Belloc, Ronald Lacey as Major Arnold Todd, John Reese davis as Salah, Denon Elliott as Marcus Brody, and this movie is the first theatrical appearance of the great Alfred Molina as Satipo, which is at the beginning of the movie. So the screenplay is by Lawrence Kasdan, the story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman, and of course it was directed by Steven Spielberg. So when we talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, we really have to start with the matinee serials of the 1930s and 40s. And these are, I've spoken about these in length before, so I'm not really going to go into them in great detail, but these matinee serials inspire so much modern cinema. So I've spoken about them in The Rocketeer, in Captain America, The First Avenger, in The Mummy. They all have their roots in the pulp cinema of the early 20th century. And Raiders of the Lost Ark, or indeed the entire Indiana Jones franchise, is no different. So George Lucas started having ideas about a grave robbing archaeologist in 1973 after finishing American Graffiti. He was procrastinating during research for some small movie set in space, I don't know, space fights, moon battles, something like that. Anyway, he was inspired by the old serials like Book Rogers and Zorro's Fighting Legion and devised a character called Indiana Smith. Indiana, named after he and his wife Marsha Lucas's Alaskan Malamute dog. Because of his space opera, which obviously Star Wars, by the way, the pulpy adventure serial starring Indiana Smith was shelved. Bear in mind, too, that Lucas had originally wanted to make an adaptation of Flash Gordon and only created Star Wars because he couldn't get the rights. But that is a story for another time and another episode on Star Wars. In 1975, he was still fascinated with pulp adventurer Indiana Smith and he and his friend Philip Kaufman worked on a script over several weeks. Smith would be a college professor and an archaeologist adventurer and ideas for him to be a nightclub patron and a serial womanizer were shelved at that time. The idea for the Ark of the Covenant and the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler's real-life fascination with the occult became the basis for the plot. The real-life Ark of the Covenant, as depicted in the movie, is a gold-covered chest, which is described in the Book of Exodus as containing the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. The Ark was supposedly removed from Kiriath-Jerim sometime after the 8th or 7th century BC and moved to Jerusalem. Since its disappearance from the biblical narrative, its location is unknown, but it's speculated to be in either Mount Nebo, 29 miles south of Jerusalem, at the church, at the church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in Axel, Ethiopia, in southern Africa, either South Africa or Zimbabwe, or the Chartres Cathedral in France, or the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome, or the Hill of Tara in Ireland, or Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt beneath the shrine of Anubis, which is a nice little callback to the mummy, or somewhere in the United States after being transported from France. My point is, no one really knows where the Ark of the Covenant actually is, but the lost relic is supposed to have mystical powers. Anyway, Obviously, during this time, during this time, Lucas was still working on Star Wars. And though he and Kaufman had a movie, Lucas wanted Kaufman to direct, but he was already committed to Clint Eastwood's The Outlaw Josie Wales. Raiders of the Lost Ark, as it's been titled, with the idea that any sequels would start with Raiders of 
going forward, stalled at that point and Lucas continued with Star Wars. It was during Star Wars release in 1977 that Lucas went to Hawaii to avoid its release. He was joined on this holiday by Steven Spielberg and while Spielberg admitted he wanted to direct a Bond film one day, Lucas ended up telling him about his Raiders of the Lost Ark idea and that it basically would be better than any James Bond movie. And so Lucas pitched Raiders as a project for Spielberg to direct. Lucas himself had no intention of directing after Star Wars and felt that Indiana Smith's adventures would be the perfect vehicle for Spielberg as well as the potential sequels because at this point he was thinking about sequels as well. Lawrence Kasdan was chosen to write the script after Lucas read his script for Continental Divide and this was despite Kasdan only having one month's professional screenwriting experience. In January 1978, Lucas, Spielberg and Kasdan started meeting at a house in Sherman Oaks, California to develop Lucas's original outline and one of the first things vetoed was the name Indiana Smith. This was due to the similarity between Indiana Smith and Nevada Smith which is a 1966 Steve McQueen movie of the same name. All three men agreed on Jones instead of Smith and Indiana Jones was born. Spielberg suggested Indiana Jones be a gambler or alcoholic, but Lucas insisted that he had to be honest, true and trusting. The audience had to always be on his side and admire the character, with the character also being fallible and vulnerable. As it would happen, Jones would have his sketchy past especially when it came to the romantic history with Marion Ravenwood, but I will come back to that. The original script had Indy travelling between the US, Greece, Egypt, Nepal and Shanghai. Shanghai would obviously end up being removed, but elements of it, including a minecart chase and a gong used to protect from bullets, would be reused in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Also trimmed was much of the love story between Marion and Indy, as well as a mutual attraction between Marion and Belloc. Lawrence Kasdan wrote the script while Spielberg directed the movie 1941 and with Lucas's help to refine it, the screenplay was ready in December 1979. Now when it came to financing Raiders of the Lost Ark, Lucas originally wanted to self-fund the project, but he had limited cash assets and so it was pitched out to several Hollywood studios who balked at the proposed $20 million budget but also at Lucas's strict demands, which included the studio having zero creative input, but having to stump up all the cost, as well as allow Lucas to retain control of licensing rights and sequels. And so unsurprisingly, they rejected these demands. Studios were also hesitant because Lucas demanded Spielberg be kept on as a director. And while Steven Spielberg was successful, he was well known in the industry, but he was also well known in the industry for his films being over budget and over schedule. Lucas refused to do Raiders of the Lost Ark without Steven Spielberg. And so when Paramount Pictures became involved, President Michael Eisner agreed a deal with Lucas, which meant exclusive rights to Paramount for any sequel. This is going to be important later, as well as inciting penalties for exceeding the budget or schedule. Paramount wanted a filming schedule of 85 days, but Lucas, Spielberg and producer Frank Marshall agreed together on a 73-day schedule, mainly because Spielberg wanted to prove Paramount wrong with their assertion that he couldn't deliver a movie on time or on budget. Steven Spielberg would work at a faster pace than usual to keep the budget low, which included a six-month pre-production rather than his preferred year. One of the storyboard artists on this movie was Joe Johnston, who'd go on to direct both The Rocketeer and Captain America The First Avenger. 
Even Arnim Zola bears a striking resemblance to Arnold Todd. Both of those movies were heavily based on classic pulp serials. So 6,000 storyboard images were produced, not just by Johnston, I hasten to add, but these helped pre-visualise the shots. The opening of the arc would combine spirits, flames and lighting, and Joe Johnston actually worked on these storyboards. Miniature sets were also built for the Well of Souls, the Tannis Dig site and the Cairo Marketplace, which helped, sh which helped set up the shots and the number of extras which would be required. When it came to casting, you'd be surprised to learn that Harrison Ford wasn't even in the top choices for Indiana Jones. They wanted to cast an up-and-coming actor for the lead role, someone who wasn't synonymous with another iconic character. Considered for the role included Bill Murray, Nick Nolte, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, even Jack Nicholson. Casting director Mike Fenton set his sights on Jeff Bridges. Marsha Lucas, who's often credited with some of the best decisions her husband George Lucas ever made, wanted Tom Selleck. At the time, Selleck was shooting a pilot for a TV show, don't know if you've heard of it, called Magnum P.I. He was contractually obligated to the show if it were to be commissioned for a full series. When CBS, the TV network responsible for Magnum P.I., realised Selleck was the lead role for the new George Lucas and Steven Spielberg movie, they greenlit Magnum P.I., making it certain that Tom Selleck couldn't continue with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Selleck ended up dropping out weeks before filming commenced. In a twist of fate, there was an actor strike in 1980, which meant Magnum P.I. was put on a three-month hiatus, which actually meant that he could have filmed the role and gone back to Magnum P.I. But unfortunately, things don't quite work out that way. For Tom Selleck, anyway. Harrison Ford, on the other hand, so he'd worked with George Lucas on Star Wars, but as his star had risen so much from the 1977 movie and its 1980 sequel, they'd considered him, but they'd never cast him. Ford was known for his reluctance to star in the Star Wars sequels, and so would he be interested in a series of Indiana Jones movies? But Ford loved the character that he was an academic first and an adventurer second. He negotiated a seven-figure salary as well as well as a percentage of the gross and the right to rewrite his dialogue when he signed on to play Indiana Jones. He also trained extensively with stunt coordinator Glenn Randall to use Indy's famous bullwhip. For Marion Ravenwood, they needed someone younger than Ford, but also someone comparable to classic cinema leading ladies, someone who could command the screen equally to Harrison Ford. Deborah Winger was approached but refused. Steven Spielberg was dating Amy Irving at the time and wanted her for the part, but she was unavailable. Karen Allen, who'd had a few screen roles in her so far in her career, including National Lampoon's Animal House, impressed the production when she developed a backstory for her character. It was her idea to call back to Marion's shot drinking in a later improvised scene with Belloc, to call back to the earlier scene and show Marion's resourcefulness by using her clothes to conceal a weapon. Due to the script being quite loosely detailed, improvisation was encouraged on set. Even the young girl with Love You on her eyelids was improvised. So there was a hell of a lot of improvisation in this movie, um, and a lot of it actually came from Karen Allen herself. Now, there is a line in the movie where Marion refers to being a child when she and Indiana dated. Canonically, according to the novelisation of Raiders of the Lost Ark, she was 15 and Indy 25, which is bad enough, but not as bad as what she was originally going to be, because George Lucas originally suggested that Marion be 11 when she started a relationship with Indiana Jones. It was vetoed by Spielberg, who stated she better be older. So Marion canonically was 16 or 17 when the relationship ended. 
This particular exchange between them where she states, I was a child, I was in love, it was wrong and you knew it, really does not age well. No one wants to admit that Indiana Jones committed statutory rape. But let's be honest, if that happened in a movie nowadays, it would not be acceptable for the hero to do that and get away with it. And I'll be completely honest, because I am a podcast, I if I'm going to call someone out, I'm going to call them out. And I called out Rick O'Connell for being inappropriate to Evie in The Mummy. So if I'm going to do that, then I have to call out Indiana Jones for doing something considerably worse in having a relationship with a 15-year-old girl. I've actually read a few think pieces in which the period setting because it purposely invokes a feeling of nostalgia, it feels more like comfort food than, say, an adventure movie that was set in 2010 would. Because Raiders of the Lost Ark is a pastiche of cinema, it's inspired by the old movie serials, as well as directly referencing classics like Citizen Kane, Kiss Me Deadly and Lawrence of Arabia, viewers are more likely to forgive the missteps of certain characters over time. Nostalgia goggles! so to speak. And hey, I am the worst for the nostalgia goggles, believe me. Having this movie set in 1936, a time when we were on the brink of war, and including Nazis as antagonists, means that we are instinctively on Indy's side, despite the argument of colonialism and archaeology as theft from a nation he has no right to thieve from. I definitely think these are valid arguments, and something that we think about more these days than we did, you know, 40-odd years ago. National treasures of other countries do belong in their own countries. And Raiders of the Lost Ark is specifically set at a time when much of the world was colonised. So whilst I'll agree that this movie is a fantastic movie, I think we can't necessarily have the blinkers on too much when watching it in 2021 as opposed to when it came out in 1981. But you know, <laughs> I genuinely do not have an issue with this movie per se. I think it's an absolutely brilliant movie. But, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that because I think that is a huge misstep for the movie, the fact that she was 15. Anyway, moving swiftly on to filming. Uh, so filming started on the 23rd of June, 1980, on set at Elstree Studio here in England, as well as on location filming in Tunisia, Hawaii and France. Filming in France began at La Rochelle. The production borrowed a submarine from the war film Das Boot for the capture of the Bantu Wind, which was filmed off the coast. Filming then moved to Elstree a week later, where elaborate sets were set up for the Well of Souls and Peruvian temple scenes. The Well of Souls was, es was especially difficult to film. This is basically the scene with all the snakes, if you don't know what I'm talking about. So the snakes themselves were a mix of real and animatronic snakes, but filming was initially delayed before a lack of snakes. So originally 500 to 600 snakes were used. This became 6,000 to 10,000 snakes, after a request was made to snake handlers. Because they used a multitude of real and venomous snakes, anti-venom had to be constantly available, as well as constant access to the stage door for ambulance staff if it was needed. More anti-venom actually had to be imported from India after supplies expired. Additionally, Stanley Kubrick's daughter Vivian was visiting her father, who was filming The Shining at Elstree Studios at the same time. She was concerned about the treatment of the snakes on set, she called the RSPCA, which is an animal charity here in the UK, and filming was halted while additional safeguards for the snake's protection and welfare were put in place on set. Spiders were also used for filming, but the tarantulas were so docile, they had to be persuaded to move on Alfred Molina's body, and they did this by introducing one female spider to all the male spiders. Basically, <laughs> if you don't like creepy crawlies or snakes, then 
I mean, this is not the movie for you. So when filming moved to Tunisia, which doubled for Egypt this time round instead of Tatooine, temperatures were often over 54 degrees Celsius. That's 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And almost everyone got sick with amoebic dysentery. The only ones that didn't were the people who didn't eat the local food, Spielberg included. He apparently had a stash of tin goods from the UK that he had brought over with him. Famously, Harrison Ford was suffering badly during what was supposed to be an extended fight scene with stunt swordsman Terry Richards. Terry Richards had spent weeks choreographing this particular fight scene. Ford was so sick that in the end, Indiana Jones just watches the swordsman flail his swords around before literally shooting him dead. It actually adds to Jones' swagger rather than takes anything away, but the sweat that you see is genuine fever. He was really struggling that day. Dysentery wasn't the only issue on set. George Lucas suffered severe sunburn and a day of filming was lost due to all the local housing having TV antennas, each of which had to be manually removed from each house because, you know, TV antennas didn't exist in Egypt in 1936. This on-location shooting would cost $100,000 a day and because they were adamant they weren't going to go over budget, Spielberg admitted that he learned to like shots rather than love them and threw his usual perfectionism out the window in order to get what they needed quickly. And Raiders of the Lost Ark is known for its huge stunts and life-side sets full of practical shots, which you would know if, if you're a regular listener, I adore practical effects and stunt work. It really warms my soul to see practical effects in movies. And in many ways, Raiders of the Lost Ark one-ups the mummy in that regard because that image of the giant boulder chasing Indiana Jones is so iconic. It's almost unmatched by anything else, even in its own franchise. That boulder, by the way, was made of fiberglass, plaster and wood. It was originally supposed to be 65 foot wide. It was reduced to 22 foot wide, but still weighed 300 pounds. Harrison Ford performed his own stunts running from it. He actually injured himself several times. He also had to do this 10 times for different camera angles too. Spielberg loved the boulder so much, he increased the size of the ramp to give it more screen time. And as a performer, I think we can all agree that the boulder is the star of this show. One of my personal favourite shots, and there's a lot of personal favourite shots of mine in this movie because it's such a gorgeous movie, but it's actually right at the beginning when the Paramount logo becomes a real mountain in Peru. This is a scene shot in Hawaii, but it actually used 10 different locations for this scene. When filming wrapped in September 1980, the lack of studio interference would make Raiders of the Lost Ark one of the least problematic productions Steven Spielberg had ever worked on. And indeed, this movie feels the rawest and least pretentious, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but it does. It feels the least pretentious of all of the Indiana Jones movies because they had no idea what a gem they had in their hands. Uh, I mean, Indy probably would have known, but he wasn't working on this production because there was no way that they would have known the reaction to this movie until it was eventually released, but more on the release and financials and whatnot a bit later. So post-production, the special effects were of course handled by Industrial Light and Magic. When the actors on set opened the arc, they had no idea what might be happening to them. In post-production, they designed spirits made with small puppets in a clouded water tank in front of a blue screen. The close-up of the ghost was actually a Lucasfilm receptionist suspended in front of a blue screen dressed in white robes where she transforms into like a skeletal monster. The practical effects in this movie hold up so incredibly well, especially the melting faces. <laughs> so let's talk about melting faces. Uh, so Carla's head was moulded and filled with bladders full of air, which were then deflated to shrivel the head. 
Chris Wallace, you remember him from Gremlins episode 74, sculpted Lacey's face with different coloured layers of gelatine over a stone skull, which when heated with propane melted the gelatine and they filmed it slowly so that when sped up at normal speed, it would melt quicker and Belloc's head mould was full of blood bags basically and various debris and then blown up using explosives as well as shotguns. Despite all of that gruesome gore, only Belloc's death piqued the attention of the MPAA and risked the film being given an R rating. This is why the finished effect is masked with flames to basically conceal all of the gore that came out of his head when it was blown up. Basically, what I'm saying is, despite the rampant death in this movie, this is a really, really pretty movie. The achievement of the visual effects is honestly unrivaled. Uh, and I feel like I'm running out of time to mention the matte background paintings in the establishing shot of Marion's bar in Nepal, or the warehouse where the ark is stored. It's looked absolutely gorgeous. Spielberg uses light to emphasise detail and he achieved this by hiring cinematographer Douglas Slocum who preferred brighter sets of backlighting. Slocum used lots of natural light and he even used solar positions to plot scene layouts so they could take advantage of the natural sunlight. And with lighting comes shadows and this movie utilises shadows to introduce indie which is such a wonderful and underused effect in modern cinema. That shot in the bar where Indy sees Marion for the first time in 10 or so years. It's such an iconic shot with the silhouette of Indiana Jones. It's just so brilliantly done. I mean, there's so many, there's so many wonderful things I could say about this movie. But you know, I'm going to move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Why Keanu Reeves? Well, why not Keanu Reeves? Because he is the nicest man in Hollywood. He's the loveliest, he's the best looking, literally the man can do it all. I mean, what he can't do is he can't star in Indiana Jones because he just doesn't. He's just not part of the franchise at all. However, while Keanu wasn't part of the Indiana Jones franchise, I've mentioned actually in the obligatory Keanu reference before about his good friend River Phoenix. So they starred together in my own private Idaho. A River Phoenix actually played Indiana Jones in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He played young Indiana Jones. So there is a link to the franchise. I mean, there's not really a link to this movie. So, <laughs> so but it's a link to Indi Indiana Jones. Uh, so I'm going to take that because sometimes these obligatory Keanu references are very, very difficult. So, you know, sometimes I do clutch at straws, but River Phoenix is really, he is Indiana Jones. It's just not in this movie. But canonically, he is. So that's the link. Now we'll move on to the music. Of course, this is the master John Williams composing the score. He wanted a really theatrical and excessive score rather than anything serious because this is supposed to be a fun adventure movie. And it is a fun adventure movie. It's a movie that you can sit with your family, with your parents, with your children and just enjoy, or in my case, on your own, and just really enjoy. And the score really adds to that. The Raiders March is one of the most well-known pieces of film music in the whole world. You will know the Raiders March. Everyone knows the Raiders March. It's it's just such an iconic piece of music. I've mentioned a little bit about the release of this movie. And I want to talk about that in a little bit more detail than I normally would. Because this is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because... The start of the 80s was not a good time for cinema. Gone were the boom days of Jaws and Star Wars and audiences were dwindling. There were no guarantees any movie would be a success and ticket prices were soaring. People just weren't going to the movies anymore. 
basically no one really expected Raiders of the Lost Ark to do very well at all. If it could make a little bit of money, then that would be great. But otherwise, hopes weren't really too high for this movie. Superman 2 was due out in June 1981 and widely expected to be the big movie of the year. Obviously, Superman was a huge movie. So, of course, the Superman sequel was going to be similarly huge. The latest James Bond effort, For Your Eyes Only, was also due out that year. Raiders was primed to be released the week before Superman 2. Up until the release of Raiders of the Lost Ark, there was no real buzz about the movie. Audiences didn't really know anything about it. You know, this is unlike today, where we know years in advance of a big movie's premiere. Well, you know, when the cinemas are open, of course. Paramount actually ended up spending $10,000 on a huge press event for the premiere of Raiders of the Lost Ark. As well as, and this is very important for the release of the movie... They arranged lucrative deals with certain cinema chains to ensure that Raiders was given priority showings. When it was released in June of 1981, it hit the number one position. Then it fell down to third place in its second week because this was Superman 2's debut. Despite fierce opposition for the Man of Steel, Raiders of the Lost Ark faced him head on and Indiana Jones regained the number one position in the sixth week of release. The movie would stay at number one for most of the following nine weeks. This is this is really where it gets quite interesting. Six months after its release, six months, so this is December 1981, it was still in the top ten in the US, with many executives joking that it would be the big Christmas movie. It remained in cinemas, not officially leaving cinemas until March 1982, but some chains were still playing it in July 1982. It would also end up being re-released in March 1983. The summer of 1981 set box office records. Like, there was nothing like it up until that point. Attributed to both Raiders of the Lost Ark and Superman 2. But mostly Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because on a budget of $20 million, it would go on to make $389.9 million worldwide. And it would be officially the biggest movie of 1981, which isn't too bad for a really tiny little movie that literally no studio was interested in. But the fact that this movie was made, the fact that it's got these huge names behind the scenes, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, obviously a huge star at the helm, Harrison Ford. People didn't really have a great deal of faith in this movie. And yet, look at what it did. It became the biggest movie of 1981. And... It's one of these really fascinating things as well, because a lot of movies are very financially successful. Certain franchises, I'm not going to mention any names, but certain franchises, I mean, you can pretty much guarantee that the next movie in the franchise is going to be a big hit and it's going to rake in loads of money, but not necessarily rake in things like critical acclaim or awards. But Raiders of the Lost Ark, basically, get yourself a film that does it all. Because not only was it the biggest movie of 1981, not only was it critically acclaimed by pretty much everyone and still is to this day, at the 1982 Academy Awards, it received five Oscars for Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction, Best Sound, Best Sound Editing, Best Visual Effects, and an additional four nominations for Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Best Director, and Best Original Score, which, can you believe it didn't win? It lost to Chariots of Fire. It would also receive a Golden Globe nomination for Best Director, and BAFTA nominations for Best Film, Best Supporting Actor for Denham Elliott, Best Original Music, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Sound, and it would win a BAFTA for Best Production Design. Simply put, Raiders of the Lost Ark wasn't only a commercial success, 
and a critical darling, it was also a multi-award winner and nominee, which is such a testament to the ongoing legacy of this movie. And it's really interesting too, because you don't often find a movie like this, a classic pulp adventure serial that has all of those things, that has the financial, that has the people going to see it, that has the critical acclaim and that has the awards behind it as well. It's a bit of an anomaly in that respect. And it's also a bit of an anomaly in its own franchise because no other movie in its franchise has lived up to the expectations that this movie set. And obviously talking about sequels, so of course we got a prequel, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which still frightens me to this day because it's really scary. We've had sequels, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, obviously featuring the late Sean Connery and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is mostly seen as the lowest point for the franchise by many. As of recording this episode, Indiana Jones 5 is in production with Harrison Ford confirmed to return and joining him is the excellent Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Mads Mikkelsen as well. This is going to be a 2022 film directed by James Mangold, uh, who directed Logan. I mean, that is credential enough for me. Obviously, covered Logan episode 19 of this podcast. Not only that, but it, Raiders of the Lost Ark influenced so many other movies. Uh, just off the top of my head, The Mummy, obviously The Mummy. We would not have The Mummy, and you know how much I love The Mummy. It is genuinely, literally my favourite movie ever. But I appreciate that we would not have The Mummy without Raiders of the Lost Ark. And for that, I am so thankful to Raiders of the Lost Ark for giving me the mummy. You know, as well as other 80s action-adventure serials, such as things like Romancing the Stone and King Solomon's Mind, as well as three 12-year-old boys. So Chris Strompolos, Eric Zala and Jason Lamb from Mississippi, they made a shot-for-shot -shot remake between 1982 and 1989. They spent their allowance on the project. They restaged over 600 individual shots for this movie, which is called Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, which is obviously a fan-made movie. It was unearthed by film critic Harry Knowles. He showed it at a Texas film festival. Steven Spielberg received a copy and loved it. He ended up writing to these boys, now full-grown men, obviously, congratulating them on their achievement, which is lovely. And just to add as well, for its video release packaging in 1999, it was renamed Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark for the packaging. The title within the movie remains simply Raiders of the Lost Ark. I am calling it Raiders of the Lost Ark because that is the movie that I grew up with. But if you find it on streaming services, it is now called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that is literally to keep it in a collection with the other movies. Had they gone ahead and did, you know, Raiders of for movies going forward, then it probably wouldn't have changed. But because the other movies are Indiana Jones and the, unfortunately, it meant the Raiders of the Lost Ark had a name change, but it's still called Raiders of the Lost Ark. So that's what this podcast is calling it. Because Paramount still own the rights to Indiana Jones and the movies that were made by Paramount, that's why this movie and its sequels up to The Crystal Skull are not available on Disney+. Plus. But this is despite Disney owning Lucasfilm and obviously the latest Indiana Jones movie that is released will be released under the Disney label that will be available on Disney plus eventually when it comes out but at, at the time of recording the others are not available on Disney plus right let's move over to social media thoughts we will start with the patrons the wonderful patrons of this podcast and I'll be completely honest uh, the patrons of this podcast are so brilliant all the time we're going to start with perennial favorite Andy from Geek Salad 
and he says, Rachel the Lost Ark is my everything, one of my absolute favourite movies. Outside of Star Wars, Raiders is one of the rare movies that delivered on its promises in the trailer. Harrison Ford is fantastic and the supporting cast is wondrous and the climax of the movie is one of cinema's all-time best. And there's a part of me that Rolf from The Sound of Music was one of the Nazis on the island. An all-time great and along with Empire Strikes Back, that is one of my Patroni. Patronuses. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's Patroni or Patronuses. I'll say both. Obviously, you guys must know Geek Salad. If you're a regular listener, you must know Andy from Geek Salad because he always comments in these episodes pretty much every week. And obviously, Geek Salad, it is your one-stop shop for all things geek, movies, music, TV, comics, books, games. I mean, is there anything that they don't cover? They even cover food. I mean, snacks. So absolutely get yourself over to Geek Salad, get yourself listening, because they are a wonderful group of people and I adore them. So yeah, make sure you listen to Geek Salad. And we also have Scott as well. So Scott is from the Monkey See Monkey Review podcast. And he says, I utterly adore Raiders. Just a perfect adventure movie. Not a second is wasted. All the ingredients work so well. Harrison Ford's performance as Indy further cemented him as my absolute hero growing up after seeing him as Han Solo. Just the absolute coolest. The script is great, the action is awesome, there are so many iconic moments. The boulder, the marketplace chase, melting Nazi faces, the whole damn thing. The shot of Dr. Jones silhouetted against the sunrise is also one of my favourite shots ever. Plus, I got to experience it on the big screen for the first time ever a couple of years ago, and it was wonderful. Can you tell? I love it. Do you love it? (laughs) I think you might. Obviously, I don't need to tell you that you should check out Monkey See Monkey Review. Scott hosts the podcast with Chris and Kev. Uh, They've not long celebrated their year podcast anniversary as well. And they've not long released an episode all about the recent Oscar nominees. Uh, And I know from speaking to Scott, he was a fan of Promising Young Woman and The Sound of Metal. Uh, Still not seen the latter myself, but I loved the former. Please go and see Promising Young Woman. It is phenomenal. Uh, Anyway, links in the show notes for Geek Salad and Monkey See Monkey Review. We have a couple of slightly late patron comments. Uh, We will start with Brendan, and he says, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a movie so perfect that it had to be the result of a string of near-fatal accidents. There's nothing quite like watching Steven Spielberg when he's got something to prove, and with Raiders he proved basically everything. Perfect casting, legendary score, flawless pulp adventure pacing, and the resulting cocktail is one that even the exact same team has never quite been able to match. And look, there are a few reasons my daughter is named Marion, but this is one of the big ones. We also have Matt, and he says, Raiders was a game changer. Spielberg practically created a new genre of film by utilising what others had done in the past and elevated it, as he did with everything else. In the end, this movie is amazing on big and small screens alike and truly earned its status as a classic. And Matt hosts the podcast from Outer Space, which focuses on sci-fi and all sorts of other bits and pieces like that. So if you like analytical podcasts with a science fiction edge, then make sure you check out that podcast. I don't think Brendan has a podcast. If he does, I don't know of it. So I haven't got anything to plug with Brendan other than he's a very, very nice man. And finally, we have Mike. And Mike says, One of Spielberg's best and a ridiculously fun throwback to classic adventure serials. What Flash Gordon was to Star Wars, Commander Cody and Black Hawk were to Indiana Jones. Arguably Harrison Ford's most iconic role, which says a lot. I prefer Crusade, but only just slightly. 
And Mike is also from Geek Salad, and I've already said nice things about Geek Salad, but, you know, take this as a double endorsement because I have two patrons from the same podcast. So clearly, Geek Salad know what they're talking about and know who to support. (laughs) Oh, they're basically great. Go and check them out. Right, so let's move over to Twitter, and we will start with Chance at ChanceWitmore5, who says, An amazing pulp film, one of my favourites growing up. It's one of those films that, despite the love shown to most of the sequels, I really feel it works best as a standalone film. I understood that reference at Cap Understands said, A film that defines the classic adventure movie and something that seems movie makers today just cannot recreate. Something children and adults can watch and both will love. We have Nikki at Trivia Chic who said, I grew up on the classics and Raiders has the unique ability to balance the things that made those movies great while adding its own modern interpretation. It's funny but doesn't downplay the serious moments and the head exploding scene is still an awesome practical effect. Yes, it absolutely is. At Oral underscore MFC said, A fun pulp throwback. Once you get past the creepiness of Indian Marion's sordid past, the success of the Indiana Jones series paved the way for the doomed but wonderful pulp revival of the 90s, and they remain some of my favourite adventure movies. And we have Kurt at Swayze of Arabia who said, Raiders of the Lost Ark is such a fun film. It has amazing performances, not just from Harrison Ford, but from Karen Allen, John Rhys Davis and Paul Freeman. Plus it has Spielberg in his prime, Lawrence Kasdan fresh off The Empire Strikes Back, and you have a perfect film. Moving over to Instagram, we finally have a comment on Instagram. Can you believe it? We've been literally dry on Instagram and Facebook. I mean, there's there's none on Facebook, I'll tell you now. But we have a comment on Instagram, and it is from Andy, at AndyWilliams91, who said, Quite simply, one of the most entertaining films ever made. The benchmark for all family films since, even if the indie does nothing theory is kind of true. And the indie does nothing theory, I mean, that was really popularised by the Big Bang Theory. I think they did an episode, it was actually called something like the Indiana Jones Theory or the Raiders Theory or something like that. And basically it was that doesn't matter what Indiana Jones actually did, his presence didn't actually affect the outcome of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, I mean, it's still, it's still a good film regardless of whether that's true or not. Uh, and like I say, none on Facebook. But a massive thank you, as always, to everyone who provided thoughts. Raiders of the Lost Ark really is exceptional filmmaking. There is really nothing like it, despite, you know, the fact that I will fully admit how much I love The Mummy. I think The Mummy is brilliant, but Raiders of the Lost Ark walked so The Mummy could run. Uh, Actually, probably more like ran so The Mummy could walk, if I'm being completely honest. Um, And I wholly appreciate the fact that without Raiders, we would not have The Mummy. But even I can be really honest and admit that Raiders does so much that The Mummy doesn't, despite my everlasting love for The Mummy. Raiders is emulated for good reason, and it's something even its own sequels have never quite reached the heights of. Not only is it deftly directed and written, it just looks so beautiful. And and even the scary bits are still so mesmerising to watch. It's one of those that does kind of harken back to the good old days of cinema with this really macho, manly male hero. But what I like is it also gives Marion more to do than just be a damsel in distress. And in many ways, I wish they'd given Willie more of Marion's gusto in Temple of Doom because there's a lot of reasons why Temple of Doom is not as good. Um, I mean, I'd argue that Willie Scott is probably one of them. Um, 
literally all she does is scream all the time um but uh, but obviously raiders of the lost ark led to bigger and better things for more or less everyone involved Lawrence Kasdan, of course, went on to write several more Star Wars movies, uh, as well as the critically acclaimed Body Heat and The Accidental Tourist. Harrison Ford went on to become one of the biggest actors of his generation. Steven Spielberg, well, he went on to make E.T., the highest grossing film of the 80s, as well as Hook, obviously, which I recently did an episode on, and it is a fantastic movie. I don't care what anyone says. And George Lucas, uh, whatever happened to that guy? Uh, I mean, I hear he went back to a galaxy far, far away. Who knows? Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you love this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by doing one of the following things. So you could leave a five-star rating and review on something like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. This helps certain algorithms and it basically just makes the podcast more available and visible to other people. So I'm told, anyway. You can just do something simple as retweet or liking posts on social media. That helps in many ways because if you like or retweet something, then someone that you know will see it and then maybe they will like and retweet it. So it all really, really helps to not only grow the podcast, but also make it a bit more visible because that's always the problem when you're a small independent podcaster, it's getting that visibility. And of course, the other thing you can do, which is really, really easy, is just tell a friend or a family member about this podcast if you think that they will like this episode on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you really like this episode, you might also like one of the following episodes. So obviously, I'm going to recommend episode 13, The Mummy, because I love The Mummy so, so much. Um, I've tried really hard not to mention it too much in this episode, just for the fact that I know that people know that I love it. It's very difficult for me to be objective about The Mummy. (laughs) But, you know, even I have to admit that Raiders of the Lost Ark, as a complete package, is a better movie. You know, that doesn't mean that I love The Mummy any less. Um, And obviously, if you do like Raiders, you will love The Mummy, I guarantee. And I kind of figured, well, no one likes Nazis, let's be honest. So if you also hate Nazis as much as I do and everyone else does, then the following episodes also contain Nazis um, that get beaten. (laughs) So, I mean, that's always really nice to see, isn't it? So I'm going to start with episode 38, Hellboy, which is a bit of an off-kilter choice, but it is based around Adolf Hitler's obsession with the occult, and obviously Nazis get punched, which is always nice. Episode 61, The Rocketeer. Again, I've mentioned this in the episode that Joe Johnston uh, directed The Rocketeer. Again, harking back to these pulp serials and obviously the next recommendation, very, very similar. It just invokes that very familiar, old world kind of classic cinema feel. And Nazis get punched. Um, So again, you know, if you don't like Nazis, you'll like The Rocketeer. And finally, episode 71, Captain America, The First Avenger, because... Adolf Hitler gets punched in that movie. It's, again, very pulpy, very serialised, um, again, directed by Joe Johnston. But there's so much wonderful brilliance in that movie. It's a very underrated MCU entry. I think a lot of people kind of forget about it now because they see The Winter Soldier and they see Civil War and they think they are the great Captain America movies. But Captain America the First Avenger, don't sleep on that movie because it's really, really fun. So, yeah... <laughs> I think, you know, it's not often that I link movies with Nazis, I don't think, but if you like Nazis getting beaten up, punched, all of those things that should happen to all of the Nazis, then you will like 
pretty much all of those movies. Obviously, give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know what you think. So the next episode is another classic movie from the 80s. But instead of Steven Spielberg, we're going to Tim Burton. And additionally, favourite of this podcast, Gina Davis. You know how much I love Gina Davis. Uh, I've covered several of her films so far. I think she's phenomenal. She is not technically the star of this show, although she sort of is. She's in it a lot more than the star of the show is. And the star of this show is Michael Keaton. And so I guess the only way I can really invoke the next episode is by saying his name three times. So, okay, here goes. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Okay, it looks like nothing untoward has happened, so that's really great. Um, so yeah, Beetlejuice is going to be the next episode. I'm really excited to be talking about Beetlejuice. I'm really, really, really excited to re-watch Beetlejuice because I've not seen it in a long time. But it's full of all of those wonderful practical effects that you know I just adore. So I am really excited to be looking into Beetlejuice for next episode. So please join me for that. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. I am at Verbal Diorama. And if you wish to support the show financially, of course, you're under no obligation because just the fact that you're here listening is more than enough for me. But if you do and you want to help this podcast grow, buy new equipment, buy new software and services and all of that sort of stuff, then you can sign up to the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash verbal diorama. Tiers start from $2 or £2 a month. And, you know, you do get some quite nice perks, I think, including now exclusive episodes for all Patreon supporters. Uh, They are available for all tiers, so regardless of which tier you sign up for. And the first of those episodes is WandaVision, and that will be out soon. I can't say exactly when because I'm still working on it, but I'm really excited to bring the patrons WandaVision. If you would like to support the show, then it would be wonderful to have you join the brilliant list of patrons. So massive thank you to them as always. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor, Scott, Mark and Brendan. You are all sources of unspeakable power. If you're interested in merch, I have a merch store, teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama. You can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com if you have any suggestions or you just want to say hi. Feel free to say hi on email or on social media. I will always say hi back. Uh, You can also go over to verbaldiorama.com and you can basically listen to episodes on there. You can contact me if you want. You can also see my stuff at filmstories.co.uk. I write several articles for them a week and I also write for the magazine. So please support Film Stories. It is a fully independent publication and it really does need your support. Even if that's just going onto the website and clicking some links and some ads and stuff because that all generates revenue. Before I do my end finally, I wanted to let Nick Haskins tell you about Livestream for the Cure, which is something that I'm going to be taking part in on the 22nd of May at 3pm UK time. He has kindly provided a little bit of audio for you guys to really understand what Livestream for the Cure is all about. So take it away, Nick. 
My name is Nicholas Haskins, and I'd like a moment of your time to tell you about the 5th Annual Livestream for the Cure. To do that, I brought along two people whom I couldn't do this event without, Gerald Morris and Dan Brennick. Over the past four years, the Livestream for the Cure has raised over $30,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. That contribution is helping to fund research into cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This year, we're aiming for our biggest goal yet as we try to raise $15,000 in 50 hours on the air. Tune in May 19th through the 23rd as we're joined live by podcasters and content creators from around the world. With your help, we can continue the fight for a future immune to cancer. Together, we can make a difference. And finally, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. Bye. Movie